Alison Garton is currently adjunct professor of psychology at Edith Cowan University in Perth, Australia. She is a chief policy advisor on child health and child protection issues to the Western Australian government, and a past director of the Australian Psychological Society. At the start of her career as a developmental psychologist in the 1970s, she was a member of Jerome Bruner's research group at the University of Oxford. This led to her lifelong interest in children's learning and language development. Alison is the author of the set text "Exploring Cognitive Development: The Child as Problem Solver." I was motivated to write the book because I wanted to consolidate much of the research that I'd done over the the previous years, particularly the work that had been conducted by students, which had sort of moved the the field forward ever so slightly, and really required. Bringing together in one spot so that I could then move the research onto its next phase, and I also felt that the time was right to write a book around some of the socio-cultural aspects of children's learning, and to bring together different theoretical perspectives and try and consolidate those as well, and and also use them to move move the area onwards. I've been working in this area for quite some time. Um, driven originally by a, a sense that I was interested in what happened when, when children worked together, and that then became why are two heads better than one, and really looking at all sorts of reasons around why that situation helped children uh, in in terms of their learning. Now, when you boil that down to conduct a study, you end up having to isolate. A particular part of the process, so you're only ever looking at one little element within that. So I've looked at different tasks、uh, that the children use when they work together. I've looked at the language that the children use when they work together.、Um, I've been looking at the levels of of、um, empathy between children as they work together. So there's all sorts of little bits and pieces that seem to have been looked at in isolation. And I think what I was wanting to do. Is consolidate those、um, in order for us to to perhaps think a little bit more broadly about the whole situation, rather than just looking at pairs of children working together, pairs of same sex, same age children working together, which is what the research typically is. In her book, Alison explores the differences between Piagetian theory and Vygotskyan theory. Here, she explains why she thinks it's important to try to arrive at a synthesis of the two. I do think they complement each other.、Um, there has been some sort of view that you you sort of pit the two against each other because they are superficially quite different. Piaget emphasised the individual had a, a stage theory of development and so on and so forth, whereas Vygotsky, on the other hand, was much more interested in how the, the socio cultural environment assisted the child to learn. But the fact remains that these theories have have been the ones that have underpinned virtually every other theory. That has followed since the 1920s. That has looked at children's development, and many of the contemporary theories, or some of the ones that follow, maybe not so much the contemporary ones, have、um, either misconstrued Piaget, or misread Piaget, or misinterpreted Piaget. And similarly with Vygotsky, and I've spent many years reading both of them,、um, some of the Piaget work in the original、uh, Swiss French, and it's it's. Interesting to see what they actually said about the child's development. If you if you dig right down, and rather than looking at、um, other people's interpretation of what they said and did, which does tend to polarise them much more than I think that, that they are.
I think that um, we can ha- combine elements of both of the theories. Um, we shouldn't be taking one interpretation over another interpretation. It's, it's, it's not either P- Piagetian or Vygotsky, and there are elements of both. And I thought that was quite interesting. Towards the start of her book, Professor Garten says it's always been her belief that children require social support to learn. So why is it that until fairly recently, psychologists have tended to ignore that aspect of children's learning? Well, if you want the blunt answer, it's because it's really hard to do the research. It's much easier to isolate elements of development. When we did all the the original Piagetian sort of experimentation, conservation and so on, the child was in there with the experimenter on their own. But moving into looking at it in children in social contexts, you add so many more variables that, in fact, people were very nervous about moving into this area with, with children. And to begin with, we, we used to run copious numbers of videotapes and so on and spend hours and hours and hours analysing them, looking for, for minute detail. We've got more sophisticated now. We've actually got, obviously, more sophisticated recording techniques. We've also got more sophisticated statistical analytical techniques. So we can actually do some of this more complex research much more easily than we ever could in the past. So that's one of the reasons is that it was much easier just to sit a child down and get them to, you know, manipulate um, rows of counters or horses and cows. Um, And I suppose from a personal point of view, from reading, um, that's why I said it's my belief that some sort of social support is necessary because, in fact, as I said, even when you read Piaget, he didn't actually say the child didn't need social support or didn't need social interaction in order to learn. It's just the, the, the way the emphasis came through in the subsequent research. So I think that we can introduce the social element and we can introduce it in a much more creative way and we can actually look at how some of these social processes work um, with children. What is it that social support brings to children when they're learning? What advantage does it have when children are actually learning together rather than trying to tackle something as an individual? Well, if we go back to Vygotsky, and this is where I found that the, this was expressed as zone of proximal development, found its way into the literature and gets interpreted as an entity, which of course it isn't, it's a hypothetical construct but it actually describes the space between what the child can do on their own or his or her own and what the child can do with some um, adult or older peer support. So that that gave voice to some of the, the views around the need for social support. And the zone of proximal development as a construct has actually been a very useful explanatory device that people have used over the years. And again, it's got more sophisticated over time as to what this actually entails. But I think it it describes the need for the child to be either pulled or pushed or challenged or whatever in order to reach that next step. And I think we can capitalise on that um, when we work with children and, and use that notion that a more capable partner can assist a child to, to learn. What you have to do is identify what it is that is the focus of attention and so that both parties are f- focused on the same thing and work out what it is the child knows about. A good example is, is, is a jigsaw puzzle um, and it's been used extensively in research and with something like a jigsaw puzzle, the parent, in this case, will will start to build up the jigsaw puzzle and then um, 
ask the child to pick up a piece and put it in and and do that you know several times and and then with the with the aim ultimately of the child being able to do this puzzle on their own so that's the the movement from the the interpersonal to the intrapersonal so what you're doing is you're actually helping the child by small steps but making sure that the child understands what's going on and you're focused on the same thing but through these small steps helping the child to do an activity on his or her own what about the same age peer-to-peer learning that very often happens during pair working or group work in schools well, this is where it gets a bit tricky. And I mean, I think this is where classroom management skills come in because you really have to be quite careful about which children are paired together. Because, I mean, even when we work experimentally with children, we can get seriously what we would call mismatched children. So you have to, again, tell the children this is what the task's about. You need to make sure that the, the task they work on together is, is a similar task to the one where, the, where their competence has already been identified. Now, if when you don't do this carefully you can end up in situations where one child completely dominates the other child and so um that's usually the more competent one which defeats the purpose of the of the um activity and we have tried um not intervening but actually reminding the children that they actually have to you know to work together you do have to be very careful in the classroom and i'm sure teachers say yes it's all very well we've got this lovely research but it doesn't work in the classroom but it can be made to work but it, it does require a certain amount of um, sensitivity on the part of the um, of the teacher to what children's abilities are and what the particular task is. So it's not just a case of you know seeing children work in pairs. It's a case of um, identifying children who have strengths and weaknesses and, and, and capitalising on that. You need to be aware of children's abilities and, and limitations as well. And it's not simply their competence. It's things like their interpersonal relationships and the way they interact with others as well. It's not simple. It's not just a case of saying, um, you know, Johnny, go and work with Jimmy. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. How do Alison and her students go about analysing what's going on in an interaction in terms of what a pair of children are saying to each other? Well, you obviously have to transcribe either the video or the audio, depending on what you've got. But then you have to go through it and, and really start making decisions about what it is that you think is going to be important. And people will argue that you've chosen the wrong um, categories for your interpretation of the language. But what I've always done is once those categories have been determined, we then apply them, and two people do that, and I look at the uh, extent of the agreement between the application of those categories. And if we're getting somewhere between round about 80% um, agreement, I think it's pretty robust for language data, the transcribed data, hopefully they're accurate data. Alison is also interested in the empathy and intersubjectivity between children when they're working together. The intersubjectivity I've defined as the meeting of minds, and that's probably not new. It's what you would find within the zone of proximal development. It's where you want to get the two minds working on the same activity, thinking, if you like, almost in the same way. They need to share an understanding of the task. They need to both understand what it is that they're trying to achieve and trying to to work towards. Now, that can be done through discussion. And children don't do this. They always launch straight into you know, playing with the, with, the, with the experimental materials. But in an ideal world, they would sit down and they would discuss what it is that they were trying to achieve. 
the, the mother and child with the jigsaw is probably a better example where the mother would be explaining what it is that she's wanting to to achieve in them working together. So there would be some possibly some talk about um, the, the, the joint achievement of this particular task. Um, ultimately, what you want to find is that, that each partner knows that the other shares the same understanding about what it is they're trying to achieve. So you really are get, getting a meeting of minds. And so with the jigsaw, both parties know that what you're going to do is um, you know, create the picture that matches that one on the box with the pieces that are available. And that's done through the mother showing the child how to do it um, and then ultimately the child doing it on his or her own. So there is a joint understanding. Now, that can be facilitated by there being greater empathy between the the parties. We sort of call it sensitivity. And the idea would be to measure um, children's sensitivity to see if that was a factor in their capacity to demonstrate or achieve intersubjectivity. Because at the moment, we don't have any way that we we can measure that except by looking at the outcome. That is, we can look at them successfully achieving the goal. Intersubjectivity is important, but it's one of these things that's actually quite difficult to measure. This is a proxy measure, is the outcome measure. But we wanted to have a look at an input measure as well um, to see if that was part of the equation. What should teachers be looking for when trying to assess what individual children have taken from the interaction and what they've internalised? That's a good question because I think it's the translation of this work into classroom activities and classroom organisation that is the challenge. The best we can look at are the proxy measures for success, namely, I guess, children being able to achieve more. I mean, I've seen this working, for example, in a maths classroom. It's probably the best example where children work on problems together and you've got some children who actually manage to to, to work out the problems and they're, you know, they're working with another child. What you're wanting to demonstrate is that the, 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 the originally less competent child demonstrates an understanding of the, um, the mathematical concept that they're learning and and sustain that over time. And also, I mean, by the same token, and this is one of the conundrums of the research, to make sure that the more competent child doesn't go backwards. You're actually assuming that that, particularly with children, the older peer has a robust um, competence that that's, you know, sustainable and isn't, isn't wobbly. That's your measure that there has been some success, is that the child has um, benefited from the interaction with the with the other child, and they've both been focused on the task, and and um, there's been some form of interaction. I mean, you can't just sit them, you know, side by side. You, you have to encourage interaction and sustained interaction between the children because they need to talk to each other in the process. They can't be passive, uh, either of them. In her book, Peer Interactive Minds. Margarita Asmetia says that the individual needs a period by themselves afterwards where the learning that's taken place in the group can sort of bed down. Essentially, a period of Vygotskyan collaboration followed by Piagetian assimilation and accommodation. I think that that's a very fair observation. I think that that is the case. I mean, this is back to moving from the inter 
personal to the intrapersonal, you've got to make sure that the accomplishment or the learning or whatever um, is consolidated in the child. And that's done with the child either on their own or spending some time just making sure that that ability is understood. In the Piagetian model, where you you actually check that children have learned things is you ask them to justify what they've done. And I guess you could do the same thing if you're adopting a Vygotskian framework um, where you've got the child. You could then say, well, what is it, you know, what's the principle underpinning what you've learned here? And do that over time to make sure that the um, the child understands. A lot of the work in conservation some 30 years ago was exactly that, was actually identifying what it was that the child had, had learned and what was the principle that the child had understood from the conservation task that, that he or she'd just done. The field of cognitive variability and new models of cognitive development, such as Robert Siegler's, are much more focused on the individual child and variability within the individual child. Siegler's work's been very influential, um, and not just in my particular areas of interest. His work has certainly led us to rethink things about individual... I mean, yes, it is about individual children, but nonetheless, he still sees the child as being situated in more of a social environment, um, his theory and his model are very much at the individual child level. He's very interested in, in the broader picture of the child. And so I think most of the models, even these, these, these ones like Siegler's, are actually embedded in a broader view of, of the child's development and learning. And while he's been drilling down, and then very, very specifically, and has actually picked up some of the old Piagetian concepts of, like conservation and and class inclusion, and has actually been re-looking at them in terms of his model, which I think is really interesting. And again, he's been facilitated by the fact that we've got better technology to help us do some of this work, um, both in terms of filming children and in terms of undertaking much more sophisticated analyses and interpretation. Siegler talks a lot about the microgenetic method, which seems to require detailed analysis. What's different about the microgenetic method of analysing what a child is learning in a problem-solving situation compared to just coding and categorising what's going on? I guess what they would argue is that they are drilling down as far as they can go to look at what children are actually doing and using that information not to try and come up with a theory or a model of how children work, which is what we were trying to do before, so that there's one size fits all. But actually acknowledging that there are possibly different ways of going about things. And children may approach a task, um, depending on the circumstances, their prior knowledge or their age or whatever, in, in one way, and then another on another day or another week, approach it in a completely different way. And he acknowledges that this variability in strategy use when approaching different tasks may in fact be a marker of cognitive change. So rather than being something that was a bit of a nuisance, it's actually seen as a strength rather than a weakness because what we were looking for previously were nice ordered markers of children's development and their learning, whereas what his model and his and others at the models are saying is that this may actually represent children trying out different things and then coming to what is the best method, the best approach for them. Um, and I think that 
these changes signal that the child is actually thinking about the task or the activity rather than um, the child either being difficult or the child not knowing what to do. So you actually say, well, let's look at all these different strategies and see what's going on here. And he comes up with a model that doesn't have a single trajectory or a single set of steps. It rather has these overlapping waves where different things can be tried at different times. What do studies like these reveal about metacognition? How children reflect on their own learning and the strategies they use? I think they are beginning to tell us a little bit about metacognition because we can look at what the child um, knows about the task so we can ask the child what it is they're trying to do. So this sort of justification after the, after the event um, because it's knowledge about the task, knowledge about the activities. So it's, it's about their learning, it's reflecting on their learning. So it would be part of their... Um, sustained understanding what they've been doing in the task and how they've come to achieve or accomplish um, what it is that they are being asked to do. There is some relationship um, between the, um, I guess, I, I guess, a social interaction into subjectivity, metacognition are um, in some ways interrelated. And I've certainly begun to explore some of that, but at, at a very much at a conceptual level trying to define what the the common elements are and how you would measure them is actually proving to be quite challenging. What does Alison see as the main messages that emerge from her book, Exploring Cognitive Development, The Child as Problem Solver? I suppose we would like teachers and developmental psychologists to look not so much on what it is that children are doing, but how they are doing it. So look at... The processes, that they, the strategies that they use, not to force them. I think what we've learned over recent years is that, as I said, one size doesn't fit all. Children go about things in different ways. So I think we need to recognise that very variability and not impose um, our ways of doing things on them. And I know when, you know, for example, when we went to school, we were all taught to add and subtract in certain ways. There are other ways of doing addition and subtraction to the ways that we were, you know, drilled in. And I think we have to recognise that. Um, and some children find some ways easier than others, obviously. So that would be one message. So focus more on the process than the outcome. I would also like teachers to think about how they can manage their classrooms so that they can allow children to work successfully in pairs um, because there are there are clear advantages to, to children working in pairs, even though we don't know the full story yet. We know there are advantages. Um, to the children and there can be advantages to the teacher too. The other thing would be to allow children to talk to each other and I think that that's much more acknowledged in classrooms now that that talking to one another um, um, helps. Most teachers will know about the zone of proximal development and I think that we need to make sure that people understand that it's it's a construct, it's 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 not an entity that they have to cross like the road, it's an idea where both teaching and learning play a role together. So it's not just a teacher and it's not just a learner. You need both parties there. Um, and I think that that needs to be understood as well. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.